Welcome back and good evening to the Professor Penn Podcast. This is episode 59, Elon, BB, Neocons, and Psychopaths. It's kind of an interesting <laughs> uh, title and give you a little foreshadow of where we're heading here tonight. Uh, David Penn here. I'm, I'm very happy to be back with you. I'm very much enjoying the live chat uh, with many of you. and. I want to be very clear that I'm answering as many correspondence as I can. If I don't answer you, please, it's not personal. I'm not judging. I just have a lot of correspondence and I'm, I'm answering as much as I can. And I really appreciate the dialogue and I'd like to see it increase and continue because that's part of forming this political community. We're building a community. I want to thank, Free People Radio for giving us a platform to build this community. We're truth-seeking media, truth-seeking, and the truth will set us free, free of lies. We're seeking the truth. I want to thank PrecinctStrategy.com, Dan Schultz, PrecinctStrategy.com, where you can go for a tutorial on everything you need to get in the game of politics. Get off the bench, take a seat at the table, get a stake in the game. Patriot economy, nothing could be more important. A friend of mine this morning, Jonathan, sent me a picture of a palm scanner at a prominent retailer. They're getting away from cash. They're getting away from credit cards. Scanning palms, a little bit different than the Patriot economy. The Patriot economy is composed of those people and those companies that are supporting the American Nationalist Freedom Movement, which we're going to talk a lot about today and how it's being criticized. And I've been very frank, and we're going to talk a little bit today about TireGet. You know, TireGet, what? You know, <laughs> I'm going to have people that are going to say, Professor Penn, you're doing this to get rich. And I'm going to tell those people, from your mouth to God's ears, I'm not a communist. I would like to get rich. I am not rich. I'm trying not to go broke, and I need your help. And if you take a look across all of the conservative media spectrum, everybody is in some way, shape, or form having to make money, selling advertising, selling vitamins. There's a lot of different strategies, but we're all doing the same thing, trying not to go broke. And, there, you know, I'm sure there's some folks in here that are making a, a fortune. And God bless them for doing so. Uh, you know, if you got 300 million views, you're probably able to make some money off of that. That's great. We want the people that are leading the movement to be successful so they can stay on air. But the fact of the matter is, most of the people that you and I watch and you and I turn to for insight and information are right on the edge of going down. And that includes Free People Radio. Because we have to walk by faith and not by sight. If we had a lot of money, we probably would join the New World Order, right? So there is some beauty in not being financially over-the-top successful. I just need enough. We want to stay on air here. So thank you for your support. And I do want to talk a little bit about Target. I own it. Uh, no, I've got a community here. People know me. Hey, when you need tires, get in touch with me. It's a good deal. I've been in the tire business a long time. I've been in a lot of things a long time. 
and they're not in conflict for me. In other words, I can have a material pursuit and I can have a spiritual pursuit, and these issues for me because of who I am are not in conflict, and that's the concept of sacred honor. I will do things correctly. I will treat my neighbor as I want my neighbor to treat me in every circumstance. I've got people in my life laugh at me because they say I'm a terrible business person because I'm so trusting. In fact, sometimes I'm called a dummy, and that's fine. That's just fine. I would rather trust you and be a loser in the transaction, let's say, than to go into every transaction untrusting, unloving, unkind. We don't do that. So if you could please um, allow me, uh, one of the things we're doing is we're going to roll this Target thing out all over conservative media, and I want to take a minute and do a live read. Target. Target is your online e-commerce tire store. My name is David Penn, Professor Penn. I'm the proprietor. Target has everything you need for your vehicles. We have 14,000 different kinds of tires in stock. We feature American-made tires because Professor Penn and Tireget believe in American manufacturing. We feature major brand tires, American-made tires. We also have low-cost tires, not because we want to, but because we have to, because there's a tremendous disparity between imported prices and domestic manufacturing. We have service. You go to the site, we will arrange to have your tires installed for 25 bucks. It's a mount a balance, a valve stem, and disposal. And that will be done at the service center of your choice right by your house. Best pricing, best service. You get to talk to me if you want to. Go to TireGet.com, and thank you very much for your support. I'm getting pretty good at that now. Am I, Tanner? Yeah, you're hitting like right on a minute. Isn't I'm watching that amazing? the timer. <laughs> Has to be exactly 60 seconds. And, you know, it's great practice for me. So you're watching me practice my art. You know, I'm practicing my art. This is becoming another artistic expression for me. No different than playing the violin. No different than my intellectual pursuits. No different than um, the martial pursuits that I've done. Uh, everything is the same but a little bit different. Everything is the same but a little bit different. I'm not playing the piano right now because I'm so involved in this political but as I get better in the political, I know my piano playing is improving. I don't know why I know that. I just know that's the way things work. When I get better in one area, I get better in all areas because I am a comprehensive, coordinated, and gestalt person. We'll talk about gestalt some other time. German word. You know, I've, I've got this beautiful prayer that is ancient that I've, I've been saying a lot on these uh, podcasts. And now we're delving in, and we're going to come back. That prayer is not going away because that's the kind of prayer you want to say every day. We want to thank the spiritual realm, God. You know, I, these are human words. I'm not here to tell you what word to use. After all, at the end of the day, at the end, I don't think what, uh, what club you're in is going to make a difference. I think what's going to matter is what do you believe and what do you do? And I think you can find that, you know, scripturally supported beyond just Professor Penn saying it. But the, the prayer, the prayer vehicle, you know, oh, God, please. No, that's not the way it works. We thank, we praise, 
And whatsoever we wish for when we pray, we believe we've received it and we shall have it. And I want to tell you, I got a lot of things that I got to think about in this way because it's very difficult out there right now. You know, the political, it's a morass. The podcast, lots of pushback. I mean, it just takes a lot of, a lot of fortitude to make this work. So any support you give us, we really appreciate. And then in my business career, oh my God, 8% interest rates, they're killing the middle market. The Fed, and I, you know, it's not an accident, okay? You can't keep expanding the money supply, which we're going to talk about today, and arrest inflation. Inflation's still roaring along out there. And you know what? So great. We got a information ministry. They're telling us everything's just wonderful. I have a question for my viewers and listeners, and good evening to you, Gabriel and LW and Jim and all the people. Thank you so much for participating. Is it getting better out there? Hey, put it in the live chat. I mean, really, you can fool. What is that when you can fool some of the people all the time and all the people some of the time, but you can't fool all of the people all of the time? I think I got that one right on the first go. Yeah, I think that I, I believe that was right. That's pretty close, right? Yeah. Let me uh, go back to the Psalms today. And again, I am not pounding the Bible. For those of you that may be watching for the first time, thinking, oh, you know, this is some kind of preacher podcast. I have a spiritual life and I have a material life. I try to keep them in balance. I've read Marx, okay? I've read Habermas. I like Noam Chomsky, and I like the Old and New Testament because there's wisdom there. I'm truth-seeking. And why I like the Psalms of David is because David knew how to pray. Go back and look at his history. Oh, this guy got in the back. He was in David, King David got into the Box Canyon many times. When I say the Box Canyon, I mean he was there with his sword and a couple of folks, and there was a thousand people coming to behead him. And he kept getting out of these spots because he knew how to pray. So I'm going to read Psalm 144. I'm going to try to read it so it's understandable. I realize when I read these Psalms sometimes, they're so poetic, it's hard to get it across. So this gives me another challenge. How can I read this Psalm as a performer so that it's well-received by you as the listener? Blessed be the Lord my strength, who teaches my hands to war and my fingers to fight. My goodness and my fortress, my high tower and my deliverer, my shield and he in whom I trust, who subdues my people under me. Lord, what is a man that thou takest notice of him, or the son of man that thou makest account of him? Man is like vanity. His days are a shadow that passeth away. Bow thy heavens, God, and come down. Touch the mountains, and they shall smoke. Cast forth lightning and scatter them. Shoot out your arrows and destroy them. Send your hand from above. Rescue me and deliver me out of great waters from the hand of strangers, whose mouths speak vanity and whose right hands is the right hand of falsehood. I will sing a new song to thee, O God. On an instrument of ten, string, of ten strings, 
will I sing praises unto you. It is you that gives salvation to kings, who delivers David your servant from the hurtful sword. Rescue me and deliver me from the hand of strangers, whose mouths speak vanity and whose right hand is the right hand of falsehood, that our sons may be as plants full-grown in their youth, that our daughters may be as cornerstones polished after the similitude of a palace, that our garners may be full, affording all manner of store, that our sheep may bring forth thousands and ten thousands in our streets, that our oxen may be strong, that there may be no breaking in nor going out, that there may be no complaining in our streets. Happy is the people in whom such is the case. Happy is the people whose God is the Lord. The only uh, issue about this is it's so hard to read it properly. It's I have to concentrate too much. I need to practice these so they're more memorized so I can get into the prayerful space because that prayerful space requires a relaxing or a movement away from really intense intellectualism. I am not saying that intellectualism precludes faith. I'm saying that an over-focus on intellectualism gets in the way of the faithful place. I don't know why that is. Maybe it's just for me. Maybe another person can be very hyper-intellectual and has that same place that I get where I'm no mind or what the uh, Japanese called mushin. And throughout the intellectual traditions, the spiritual traditions of the world, typically we are taught to go to a no mind or a no thinking place to develop that emotional place where we can be in touch with the Spirit. Now, it's very interesting because in the, in the Judaism and in the Christianity that's the roots of our society, these are written traditions, and the Word is contained in an intellectual vehicle which we read and study. So again, this is a yin and yang, okay? The yang being that intellectual focus on the Word, the yin being that emotional space where the mind is open to the divine. So we're always working in that, that polarity of yin and yang, light and dark, fire and ice. And I think it's very important that I continue to work through this and become a better presenter of these prayers, really for my own good. Because if I'm going to share them with you, I might as well really be in that prayerful place. So because I just feel a need, Blessed are you, God and King of all worlds. Thank you for creating the light and the dark. Blessed are you, God and King of all worlds. Thank you for creating me in your image. Blessed are you, God and King of all worlds. Thank you for making me an American. Blessed are you, God and King of all worlds. Thank you for making me free. Blessed are you, God and King of all worlds. Thank you for healing the blind. Blessed are you, God and King of all worlds. Thank you for feeding the people. Blessed are you, God and King of all worlds. Thank you for releasing the bound. Blessed are you, God and King of all worlds. Thank you for raising up the downtrodden. Blessed are you, God and King of all worlds. Thank you for creating the heavens and earth. Blessed are you, God and King of all worlds. Thank you for providing for all my needs. Blessed are you, God and King of all worlds. Thank you for directing my path. 
Blessed are you, God, and King of all worlds. Thank you for our American courage. Blessed are you, God, and King of all worlds. Thank you for crowning America with glory. Blessed are you, God, and King of all worlds. Thank you for restoring strength to the weary. You know, when I go to read these Psalms, I'm looking for the right version. Because, you know, let me give you a blast. They're not really originally coming out of English. They're coming out of a foreign language. That'd be Hebrew. And when you read them in Hebrew, they're pure poetry. They come across like a song, like a poem. It's much easier to get into that sacred space when you're singing, when it's a prayerful hymn. Like this prayer I just said, it, it, it has a, a flow. I've, you know, it's, I've translated it in a way where it has a natural flow, allowing me to get out of my over-reliance on intellectual. And when I was looking for the translation for this psalm, I just took the King James Version, and it occurred to me just now, you know, maybe they translated it so you can never get into the prayerful place. You know, this is how how deep I think the rabbit hole might go. You know, you could translate something so it doesn't work and then tell people, here, have a five-course meal, and then you eat it, and you find out it's wood chips. And I think this is the kind of thing that we need to talk about. I was in a conversation with an activist just yesterday about the word and the, the written word. And, you know, <laughs> who's doing the translations? I mean, when I read it in the original Hebrew, I know what it means to me, but somebody taught me the Hebrew. There's a great scene in the Matrix, Matrix number one. Did you ever watch the Matrix? No, I have not. <laughs> oh, your generation is not into the Matrix. Did you watch The Godfather yet? No, I have not. Oh, you're going to get some pushback in the live chat. You stay on and watch how your viewers and your listeners are going to react to I'm that. Sorry. <laughs> I'm sorry. Yeah, I'm sorry, you guys. should be sorry, okay? That's a should statement. Be sorry. You know, I'm trying to give you some belt-high fastballs. You didn't watch The Matrix. Wow. No, but you want to, uh, oh my gosh, was it Casablanca? I think I, I tried to go and watch Casablanca, and I only rented it for two days, and then mm. something popped up, so then it expired. So I didn't get to watch the I whole thing. I think we're going to put up on the Free People site, which will be up soon, a re uh, recommended viewing list. Number one is going to be The Godfather. Yeah. Number two is going to be Casablanca. And number three is the Matrix. And there's a scene in the Matrix. It's a great scene. And they're talking about the gruel that they're eating. And, uh, you know, a tough guy says, you know, it's everything the body needs. And they, what does it taste like? And somebody says, well, it tastes like chicken. And somebody says, well, how do you know what chicken tastes like? Interesting, isn't it? All right, let's, without further ado, get into this. Here's a clip, a 15-minute clip. We're going to talk about the American Jubilee. And why are we going to talk about it again? Because it's important, really important. We're sitting here, we're in the middle of a political theater, pure political theater. It's called the budget fight. They're having a fight over passing a budget in the Congress and the handful of nationalists in the Congress, and it's a handful. They're, you know, they're trying to obstruct the process of the Uni Party. There's not enough American nationalists in the Congress to want a shotgun. I can think of two or three, maybe two, reliable senators, and there's less than 50 Congress people. So when we sit here and we talk together, we the people, hey, we're not, we're not involved, okay? We've been outsourcing our self-governance to 
what has turned out to be evil men and women. And why do we know it? Look at the result. There are many, many, many facts that we could use to say that our governance is at the very best incompetent. And let's remember that if you run an organization like I do, you understand that when you make a decision to put an incompetent person in charge of a project, you're ensuring the project's going to fail. You know, and then you get to blame the person for being incompetent. But really, you put them in the role to be sure the project was going to fail. And Tanner, guess what project they're trying to make fail? Freedom. Your freedom and the freedom of your daughter. So when you get incompetent, now, we the people, oh, I, I go into these live chats and I'm all over it. Oh, the Fed, the Fed, the Fed, it's just horrifying. Yeah, they are horrifying. Guess what? We, the people, regulate the Fed if we were able to get into the game of politics and elect American nationalists that want to have a country. This has been going on since 1913. And what a surprise. Woodrow Wilson. Actually, I think the first great internationalist was Teddy Roosevelt in the modern era. Then Woodrow Wilson came along, started the League of Nations, started the Fed, a more brutal racist you cannot find. He's a lion of the Democrat tradition. He's the first Democrat globalist, in, in my opinion. And under his watch, all these globalist institutions started to form. For example, the Council on Foreign Relations grew out of Woodrow Wilson's use, employment of the intellectuals in Columbia and Harvard, Princeton, our elite institutions, to formulate a future path after World War I. Now, the way if you go on Wikipedia and read it, they said they were studying what they thought was going to happen. You know, that's great. It's a secret society, and they were formulating the world as they wanted it to be. And guess what they wanted? Slavery, drugs, and piracy. And, you know, you get the slavery part and the piracy part from your monetary policy. Our public debt is now exceeding $33 trillion. And I've been on, for example, Representative Tom Emmer, because he's a Minnesotan in Congressional District 6. He's really in my line of country. And what I'm hoping for, and for the people in CD6, they're getting down on me, the Republicans, because, you know, they're so happy to have this guy as their representative. I'm not necessarily trying to topple Tom Emmer. I'm trying to get you to get off your ass and go hold him accountable for the every time that I listen to this guy all the time. I'm going to start, I'm going to have a party when he tells the truth. And I got really good friends that like this guy. Really good friends. Like my friend Howie. Really good friends with him. And Howie is tolerating me, and I think Howie is listening to me. And I think Howie is starting to see that there's a lot of BS in the in this playing field here. And Tom Emmer was at the forefront of saying we've got these huge cuts, two and a half trillion, when in reality the deficit is just going up and now we got a handful of nationalists trying to retard the process of borrowing, which is going to lead to a currency collapse. Now, 
As my good friend Tom reminds me, and thank you again for watching, Tom. Tom is a financial markets expert. I really, he's helped me. His insights are really good. Uh, he reminded me that the Fed and the central banks have so much power that they can delay this collapse almost indefinitely. It's not indefinitely, but they can really delay it. In other words, we can't predict the hour of the collapse. And I watch the financial markets every day. I watch them fairly closely because I'm in the game. So, you know, I'm watching what they're doing. And this trillion dollars of additional debt, hey, you know what? If you're in for $32 trillion, why not $33 trillion? You know, Tanner, I think you owe about $300,000 to pay this off. Do you know that? I don't got that money. I don't know. <laughs> like right. Where... Well, you know what? You're never going to have the money because yeah. they're going to tax any money you get to get this money back. And you know, your daughter is alive. She owes 300,000. I don't even think she's five years old yet. No. She owes 300 G's. That's pretty good to get in debt for. Do you know if you got a kid under five, do you know the skill it takes to get $300,000 of debt before the age of five years old? That's, that's kind of a perverse <laughs> skill, isn't it? Tanner's laughing. He's getting my joke. <laughs> so we have this problem in this country. And I'm going to just say, and I don't want to get into it so long that we, we run out of our time constraints. We're going to have a moment. We're going to have the Great Reset or the Great American Jubilee. What is the Great American Jubilee? Well, it's based, and again, I'm not pounding the Bible, but there's so much wisdom. I'm just going to read you a few really cool ones here. In this year of the Jubilee, Everyone is to return to their own property. In other words, if you're a debt slave, they set you free. Isn't that great? Isn't that cool? Isn't that cool that right in thousands of year old text, they already knew about intergenerational debt and to not let it happen. They wanted intergenerational equity where people could not be permanently removed from the lands that they had. If you sell land to any of your own people or buy land from them, do not take advantage of each other. Come on. Isn't that reasonable? This is why the second you know, great commandment, treat your neighbors. You want your neighbor to treat you. You know, don't be an ass. Don't rob people. You know, I get people trying to rob me all the time, all the time. I mean, I do get robbed all the time. That's why Mrs. Professor Penn says I'm a dummy sometimes because I trust people. But it also says, be like a little child in your heart. And I don't want to give that up. I know I can be cruel and controlling. I know that about myself. Maybe one day I'll tell some stories. But, you know, to those people in my life, they go, oh, I got a daughter, for example, that doesn't think I'm qualified to do such things. She even makes up stories in her mind about why not. And I'll tell you what she's pissed about. My father actually was Professor Penn. I am not a professor. But Free People Radio said, not knowing, they didn't even know my dad was a professor. They just know from who I am, we're going to call you Professor Penn. It's cool. And I said, don't call me Professor Penn. It's going to piss my mother off. It's going to piss my kids off. Everybody loves my dad. And, of course, you know, the people looked at me, my producers, and they said, hey, shut up. You don't know what you're doing. We're going to sell you. Please proceed. I don't know what I'm doing. I'm just your humble servant. 
And this daughter's pissed off at me about this. So she makes up things about, of course, she's a communist. She's a graduate of one of our elite institutions. So we've all got a past, and we all have people in our past that are holding on to judgments about us. That's why judge not lest you be judged. We're all moving ahead. Hopefully, Tanner, that when you're 40, you'll be a... Do you think you'll be a better man at 40 than you are at 23? Oh, definitely. Great. Do you think your daughter might have some complaints? In, in what regard? Do you think she might have some complaints when she's 25 years old about how you raised her? Oh, definitely. Great. I, I think that's every child. Good. If you raised her perfectly, she might have some complaints. That's just in the nature of who we are, right? So I have five kids. I got kids with complaints. I'm sorry to them. I love them. But we're all moving ahead. We're all developing. And part of it is looking back at the freedom that comes when your debts are forgiven. The Jubilee goes beyond just materialism. It's a spiritual concept. It's a spiritual concept. And I think this is one of the best ones right here. The land, must, the land, the land that we walk on must not be sold permanently because the land is mine. This is God speaking. Because the land is mine and you reside in my land as foreigners and strangers. Throughout the land that you hold as a possession, you must provide for the redemption of the land. So God is saying, hey, the land is mine. Get over yourself. You're a sojourner. You're a renter. We're not, we've gotten away from the basics of what makes for an equity society. And I don't mean equity like everybody's the same. I mean like having something. We're allowing our net worth to be taxed away and inflated away. We're becoming very poor, poor, like Tanner. Is there inflation in your life? Yeah. Is it getting any easier? No. Great. Please support the podcast. Please send it out to all your friends and relatives. Bring them to Free People Radio. Bring them to the Professor Penn Podcast. Support us, and we're going to give Tanner more money because we're not, we're not asses. We're not trying to keep it all for ourselves. We're trying to get a rocket off the ground here. I love this one. Anyone who sells a house in a walled city retains the right of redemption a full year after its sale. Now, this is the opposite of redeeming the farmland. In the farmland scenario, you can go get your land back at the Jubilee 50 years down the road. But if you buy a house in a walled city, in other words, if you give up your self-governance for the protection of walls, after a one-year warranty where the seller can take the house back, after that year's up, hey, you own that in perpetuity. It's interesting. Almost, as I said in a previous podcast, it's like nationalism and globalism baked in the cake here. If any of your fellow Israelites, which would mean Americans, become poor and are unable to support themselves among you, help them as you would a foreigner and a stranger so they can continue to live among you. Do not take interest or any profit from them. In other words, don't charge the poor interest and do not profit from them. They can't afford it. They cannot afford it. Do you have a credit card? I'm um, not a credit card. Good for you. 
I think the credit card interest is like 30% right now. It's a little bit in the opposite of how we were given an opportunity to live. I didn't say should. We have free will. Cut up your credit cards. Cut them up. Throw them away. Carry cash. Your debt burden will be reduced. Your free will to reduce your debt. Please develop equity. We'll talk about it. This is great. Do not take interest or any profit from them, but fear your God so that they, the poor, may continue to live among you. You may, you must, you must not lend money at interest or sell them food at a profit. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt to give you the land of Canaan and to be your God. Well, this is kind of the setup for where we're going to be heading uh, in the rest of this podcast. Because, you know, we got some anti-Semitic tropes, and we're going to get into them a little bit. But before we do that, we've got the Great American Jubilee or the Great Reset. Let's listen to a little bit about what the Great Reset's about. Under number three, or it's the Great Reset, let's listen to Klaus Schwab, the leader of the World Economic Forum. It's a long piece. We'll stop a few times if we need to. Excellencies, distinguished participants of this very important meeting, let me first congratulate the government, the president government of Indonesia for exercising such a great hospitality for all of us who are here. I would also like to express my admiration for the quality of the preparation of this B20 meeting. It reminds me, actually, in 2010, I proposed to the chair of the G20 at that time, the Korean chairmanship, to integrate a strong business dimension into the deliberations of the G20, because I deeply believe into the multi-stakeholder concept, which means we all have to work together, corporations, of course governments, civil society, to address the big issues in our world. Let me just make four remarks related to generating growth through innovation. First, of course, if you look at all the challenges, we can speak about a multi-crisis, an economic, a political, a social, an ecological, an institutional crisis. But actually, what we have to confront is a deep, systemic, and structural restructuring of our world. And this will take some time. And the world will look differently after we have gone through this transition process. Politically, you stop it, please. So what Klaus Schwab is saying is there's actually a plan 
which is in the hands of technocratic elites, to restructure the world. I don't vote for that. Do you vote for that? Did we the people take a referendum on world restructuring? Eh, that's globalism. Please continue. Driving forces for this political transformation, of course, is the transition into a multipolar world, which has a tendency to make our world much more fragmented. And for this reasons, okay, stop, please. So this, he's actually. This is a tell for this guy. He's actually concerned about the fragmentation into a multipolar world. He's trying to take uh, a problem for globalization and for the imposition of the uh, world governance, and he's trying to spin this into something that works so they can continue their plans. And quite frankly, they're doing a great job of it. Continue, please. Like this one. The G20 and so on are the very important connectors to avoid a too great segmentation, I would say, blockization instead of globalization of our world. If you look at the economic transformation forces, I just would like to mention four the energy transition which we need and where Indonesia is playing a very important role. Second, the reshaping of our supply chains where Indonesia can play a very important role. Then I would also say the integration of external costs Just look at plastics, 10 billion tons a year of plastics are moving into our oceans. And for this reason, I'm so pleased that on the occasion of this G20, B20 meeting, we can announce and inaugurate an O20 to take better care of our oceans. But in addition to the reshaping of our supply chains, of the energy transformation, of internalization of external costs, we also see the consequences of militarization of our economies. Now, this all means at least at the beginning, a cost burden. Now, if you restructure a company, you write off the costs, and of course, the shareholders are suffering. If you restructure an economy, the result is a reduction of income. Oh, stop. Boy, did you hear what he just said? Lay it out for him, Professor. If you restructure an economy, the result is a reduction of income. Wow, isn't that nice? 
when we restructure our economy, you're going to have less money. Isn't that great? I mean, just telling you. Please continue. Disposable income, which can lead to extensive social tensions, which we see in our world. Oh, stop again. So this is hilarious, right? We're, these elites are restructuring the economy, so there's a reduction of income, which he said is going to lead to an increase of political tensions and violence. Oh, my gosh. Really? So these are the people we're electing who's, who are down with this because we got a uni party that's fully down with globalism, climate change, social equity, democracy. These people that we send, we got a handful of nationalists that are fighting this. What are they fighting? A reduction in your income and an increase in the violence of your city. Come on. These people are right in your grill. And what's great about this is just a little bit of self-governance. 24 hours a year of getting involved and becoming delegates to your local party functions and getting endorsed candidates that actually believe in human well-being, the American Jubilee. And voila, Klaus Schwab becomes a historical figure and we never have to put up with his bullshit anymore. Please continue. Developing. Now, how do we deal with this transition which may last for several years? Not just applying crisis management, not just reacting, but constructing the future with a purpose. We should use this transition time with a clear concept of what we want to achieve, how we want to come out of this transition time. We want to come out as a more sustainable, more resilient, and more inclusive world. Now my second point relates to the fourth industrial revolution, the minister mentioned. When I wrote the book about the fourth industrial revolution, and conceptualized the idea of this revolution, I described 23 technologies. And at that time, only five years ago, many of those technologies were considered science fiction. Today, they all have become realities, and new technologies we have to Stop, please. Okay, Klaus Schwab is bragging about scientific research that is not in the interest of my well-being and Tanner's well-being and our children's well-being, and he's bragging about it. This man is right in my grill, putting it in my face that they have anti-human technologies. They didn't even exist five years ago. Where did the funding come from that? Oh, that'd be... The taxes that you're paying, Tanner, you're paying for this. You're actually paying for the technologies they're going to use to dominate, control you, reduce your income, and put you in a city with more violence. Isn't that great? Boy, what a scam. You know, in the long con, we are the marks. How do you defeat a long con? You just figure out you're a mark, and if you take action, all the con artists, they run away. 
Let's continue. Quantum technology, the metaverse, and I'm very proud that Indonesia is again one of the countries which wants to ride at the forefront of those the developments of the fourth industrial revolution. What makes the fourth industrial revolution different? Three things. First, it's the scope. Contrary to earlier technological innovation, it doesn't deal with one or two innovations. It's a whole panoply of technologies which interact and which completely will change how we produce, how we consume, how we communicate. But the second element is the speed. And if you look at technological revolutions, it usually goes in the form of an S-curve. And just now, we are at the inflection point to exponential development. And technology will change completely what we are doing at this present time, and not only what we are doing, and that's another change, it will change and it will have an impact on even who we are. Just look how even the internet has changed to a certain extent our identities over the last 20 years. I'm very proud that the forum is also at the forefront of those new technologies, and we will showcase, even here, in the context of our presentation of the Ocean 20 initiative, how you can use the metaverse in order to create much deeper and much more extensive and comprehensive global dialogues. My additional third point, the third difference which we see in the fourth industrial revolution is the fact that the winners take it all. Contrary to the previous industrial revolutions, it's very difficult to copy. So if you are first mover, you are the winners. And this will determine Oops, global competition. Listen to this now. Did you get this? I don't think I understand what he's trying to get at. What he's saying is, is whoever controls these new technologies, which evolve humanity to a completely new kind of a species, mm. whoever controls this technology wins the game permanently. What that means is, is there's a class of rulers and everybody else is a slave. Isn't that great? It just makes me really think, like, is it, are we at a point that, like, we have to break away from technology? Like, well, that, that's a whole pot. I think about that all the time. I, I really think about it because I'm a generation that was, like, raised with technology in the house, like, right from the get-go. So it's, it's hard for me to imagine a life without technology, but I also see all the dangers that, and all the, the wrongs that the internet and technology has done to us. Well, that's nothing. He's saying we're at the inflection point. Yeah. That was just warm-ups. Yeah. So this is, the, this is what we're working for as American nationalists. There's no borders on this man's ambitions. There's no fear of the Lord. 
there's no love of nature. They're telling us that nature, the nature of man, is irredeemable, that we are not going to be saved through faith, that we're going to be in a new technological world where there's winners and losers permanently. Please continue. Professional and national, but also on the on a business level, to a large extent, and I hope in a not too hostile way, in the coming years. Now, just two last points: public-private cooperation. Today, some people would say, until two years ago, until the crisis hit. It was business who was in the lead. And now with the crisis, with COVID, it's government who is in the lead. No, it should be governments and business. Governments and business have to cooperate in order to become a fast fish. Because in our world of today, it's not anymore so much the big fish who eats the small fish, but it is the fast fish who eats the slow fish. And in order to be a okay, fast stop. fish... stop. I've had enough of Klaus Schwab. Whoa. You can go listen to the, you know this. You can find it on the internet. I, I suggest you listen to it. Put it in Klaus Schwab B20. It'll pop right up. Go through it slowly and think about each paragraph. What this man is selling. The fast fish eats the slow fish. In other words, if you slow down to go into the woods this weekend, a bass fish is going to come and eat your ass. Isn't that great? Isn't that wonderful? What a beautiful Darwinian concept we have here. This man is a full-blown Darwinist, a full-blown a full Galtonian. He's not kidding around. He's being very upfront about it. He says we're at the inflection point. And when he says there's going to be winners that take all, he means it. He's not kidding around. When a winner takes all, that would be called inflation, for example, or nuclear war, or these new technologies. None of this is about the well-being of the American people, let alone the global people. But I'm not here to help the Indonesians or work for the Indonesians. I'm here to work for the citizens of Minnesota. That's my line of country. What's your line of country? What are you willing to do to stop this son of a bitch from taking everything away from you you've ever had or ever will have? I mean, the man is not hiding. And these technologies are not in service to me and my five children or my parent. It doesn't serve them. It's to control them. Winner take all. And, you know, at least there's many le We're going to start talking about the complexity of this. This man is working on a meta principle, an overarching principle that's being implemented, and there's all this warp and woof down one level politically, and they're managing it because it, just like in the Bible it says all things function for good, in this man's world, and what world would that be, all things function for bad. That's the Professor Penn opinion. Okay, so we'll talk a little bit about neocons and psychopaths. Neocons and psychopaths. Let's understand that we have a uni party. Let's agree to it. 
Let's quit thinking about Democrats and Republicans because they're all the same. It's political theater. It's simply put in front of us as a bread and circus, an amusement to give us the illusion that we have a choice. We don't have any choice. Four senators, that would be Senator Tom Cotton, Republican of Arkansas, Senator Roger Wicker, Republican of Mississippi, Susan Collins, Republican of Maine, and Lindsey Graham, Republican of South Carolina, uniparty participants all, have penned a letter to Joe Biden urging him to send attackums to the Ukraine. The senators argue that not doing so will only prolong the war between the Ukraine and Russia. Let's give the Ukrainians powerful missiles that can go right into the heartland of Russia because, of course, that's going to shorten the war. Quit lying to the American people. Let me just show you a clip from Senator Roger Wicker that was recorded long before Russia invaded the Ukraine. And I'm going to, if anybody has ever heard of Senator Roger Wicker, of course, if you're from Mississippi, you've heard of him, maybe. This guy is one of the anonymous wise men who's as insidious as it comes. Please start at 243. You're going to hear, this man is a psychopath. You're going to listen to psychopathic statements from a psychopath who is threatening my life. And he went into this war with the intent to kill me. Let's listen to Brother Wicker here. Well, I'm not going to call him brother. He's not my brother. I'm being too kind. He's not a brother. This man is a psychopath. And why I went down that road to bring this out is, well, we do, oh, he looks like a human being. He lo- he's wearing a business suit. He looks like a, he looks like a nice grandfather. This son of a bitch is a psychopath. A psychopath. Let's play a psychopathic comments, please. All right, what does military action mean, Senator? Well, military action uh, could mean uh, that, that we stand off with our ships in the Black Sea and, and we rain destruction on, uh, uh, on, mil- on, on Russian military capability. It could mean that. It could mean that we participate, and I would not rule that out. I would not rule out American troops on the ground. We don't, do you know, we don't rule out uh, first use nuclear. Um, oh, stop. Act. Yes, we do, you psychopath. We rule out first use nuclear. That was always American military doctrine. Always. We rule out getting into a land war with a nuclear power. It leads to Armageddon. It leads to nuclear war. You psychopathic pig. We've elected this man. He's in the Congress. He's written a letter with three other uniparty senators urging President Biden to escalate the war. What, what are we doing here? We the people have control of this. Mississippians, 24 hours a year, get involved and endorse a different nationalist candidate and defeat this bastard. Get him out of our Senate. Please continue. Uh, we, we, right. we don't think it'll happen, but there's certain things in negotiations, if you're going to be tough, that you don't take off the table. And so I think, we, I think the president 
should say that everything is on the table. And frankly, to the extent that you um, that you had Democrats on the show right before me being quoted as saying we need to be tougher, I support that and I appreciate that. I think they stop, they please. Oh, the Democrats and Republicans, they all say the same thing. That's because they're all sipping out of the same drink. They're the uni party. Like in Germany, they had a uni party. It was called the Nazi party. But that's a little crude, right? Just to call it one party. Here, I have the illusion of choice. I could be a Democrat or Republican. I have the illusion of choice. We have no choice with this group of clowns in our Congress. We got to take 24 hours a year, every American citizen that values their life and their freedom needs to get into the political process, at least to the extent that we're endorsing in our states Americans that want to have a country, that want to enhance human well-being, that care about my survival. Not crazy bastards, crazy baldheads that on national television say we have to leave first strike nuclear on the table. You know, the Russians listen to that. This is a little bit like a gunfight in the Old West. Two guys saunter into the center of town. They're about to have a gunfight. Somebody's going to draw first. That means the guy that draws the fastest wins a good old-fashioned gunfight. This is what this guy is proposing. First strike. He wants to be like, we're going to, would you remind me? I think we'll start out with the cold open next time with a good old-fashioned gunfight. Gunfight? Yeah, gunfight. I mean, I just have to remember, because we have to understand, the only difference between a six-gun and an ICBM is the technology is advancing. Like Klaus Schwab said, we're at the inflection point for a tremendous technological revolution. So we went from rocks to bullets to ICBMs. Oh, it's getting better, isn't it? What do they have up their sleeve next for me? How are they intending to kill me next? Really, this is very aggravating. So, Senator Wicker, Senator Graham, Senator Collins, Senator Cotton, we the people have to retire these people if we want to live. And, of course, the Republican parties in each one of these states love these people. Like here in Minnesota, they love Tom Emmer. They love him. The Republican Party loves him. How do we change it? We go into the parties, those of us that have the time and the energy and the intent, we go into the parties and we take them over because they're Democratic organizations. It only requires us to show up. My good friend Thomas the Good told me many years ago, governance is prosecuted by those who show up. And we're going to show some of that what happened here in Minnetonka next time next week. Come back. It's getting interesting. But we got to get rid of these people, and we got to get these parties focused on the well-being of the people. 24 hours a year? 24 hours a year so your kid. Tanner? Yeah. 24 hours. 24 hours, brother. 24 hours a year to protect your daughter from people like this. Quit being a doomer and get in the game. You got a daughter. Okay. Hey, being kind of kind of an ass about this. But let's just go on because, you know, <laughs> there's material everywhere. We're going to talk a little bit about anti-Semitism. 
And as a Jew, I'm qualified to speak of it. You know, it's hard to deplatform a Jew when he talks about Nazis or anti-Semitism. So we're going to work through some very interesting issues now, which is on front page, front page. Everybody's talking about this. Let's take a look at uh, this uh, first piece, They Hate Us. Pop that one up there. Scumbums. You scumbums on X, Twitter X. Anti-Semitism is trending again. I love a bunch of anti-Semitic people, anti-Jews, debating on what Jewish people should deem anti-Jewish. Keep the Jews' names out your f mouth. If we think it's anti-Jewish, it's anti-Jewish. All right, cracker? All right, you creepy crackers? You Alex Jones worshipers? Alex Jones was right, right? Alex Jones was right about everything except Sandy Hook. He wasn't right about Sandy Hook. That he was wrong about. I think we could all agree he was wrong about Sandy Hook. You fuck. Get some new heroes, you fucking creeps. Uh, you know, I don't even know this guy's name. I think he was an actor. I think he has a following for such displays. Uh, he's wearing the Magandavid on his chest. That's great. We're gonna, you know, he's wearing a symbol. Uh, I, Professor Penn, finds such displays appalling. Labeling, name-calling, not helpful. You know, you have to wonder, whose payroll is this guy on? Or is he just dumb? Could be just dumb. Could be dumb. I don't know. Could be dumb. But he's not contributing to a dialogue that leads to reconciliation when he's labeling people as crackers or saying that certain media figures have anti-Semitic audiences. This is not how we work our way. We don't, we're not working our way out of the problem like this. We're not working our way out of the problem. And I, I think those of you who are watching a lot of these broadcasts know, these transmissions know, that I'm trying to work us out of this problem. That the issue is not Jews. It's not the issue. That's not the issue. The issue is globalism and nationalism. It's not Democrats and Republicans. We got a uni party. Faith and love of country exist in the heart of Professor Penn. And I was born a Jew, and I speak Hebrew, and I can talk to any Christian about any New Testament subject. And I, some of you have watched me in the live chats talk with really people who are very, you know, anti-Semitic. And they, they think that they want to tell me that, you know, hey, I'm no good because I say I'm Jewish. And I talk to them, and at the end, because I, I have the courage to talk to them, we can reconcile because a person of goodwill will understand that faith in God is faith in God. So how the hell did we get in this spot with the Jewish people? Well, there's a lot of reasons, and we're going to just talk about some of them for just, just a few minutes. I mean, this is tough, tough stuff we're going to get into now. And I'm going to try to go through this as, as carefully as I can for two reasons. Number one, I don't want to make a mistake. Number two, I don't want to get deplatformed. So let's play this about uh, Israeli Americans protesting the visit of 
Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu to the Bay Area this past week. A fiery greeting for Israel's Prime Minister. He touched down in the Bay Area this morning facing protesters. He's meeting today with several Silicon Valley leaders, including Elon Musk. The hundreds of people who turned out say they're not happy about this. Good morning, I'm Kristen Z, And I'm Kumasi Aaron. Today's visit is Benjamin Netanyahu's first trip to the United States since his new government was formed about nine months ago. Even more protesters turned out where the prime minister was set to meet with Elon Musk to make sure their voices were heard. ABC 7 News reporter Lena Howland spoke with some of the demonstrators. Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu is starting his trip to the U.S. in the Bay Area, talking technology and AI with Elon Musk. The high-profile visit comes as Netanyahu faces political opposition at home and abroad. He was greeted by protesters upon his arrival in San Jose. This leadership is not transparent, it's corrupt, and it's anti-democratic. In Israel, we do not have a constitution. The only checks and balances on the government are the Supreme Court judges. Itzan Levy, who holds dual citizenship in America and Israel, is here to demonstrate all the way from New York. She's speaking up for friends and family who can't. We already see how human rights are being revoked on a daily basis throughout all the amazing demonstrations my fellow Israelis are doing every day in Israel, and I'm concerned. Protesters then moved to the Fremont Tesla factory where Netanyahu met Musk, the leader of Twitter now known as X, who is facing accusations of tolerating anti-Semitic messages on his social media platform. Because Elon Musk has been attacking the Anti-Defamation League and he has been permitting back onto the platform people who are blatantly anti-Semitic. And this is what the, is this government is doing, meeting with Elon, going to Hungary, going to places where anti-Semitism is rampant and it's a fight Uri Zernick has become all too familiar with. We'll go down in history as one of the you know standouts in uh, destroying uh, you know Israeli assets and Jewish assets. He spent the first 10 weeks of Netanyahu's administration holding demonstrations across Israel before coming back to California. We identify with our families in Israel. That's, uh, you know, our heart is with people who live there and uh, that's their home. And uh, there, there is nothing they can do. They just uh, have to keep going on with their lives. So that's our chance to show them that we identify. The Jerusalem Post reporting that prominent Jewish organizations in San Francisco sought to arrange a meeting with Netanyahu during his visit about the rise in anti-Semitism, but their offer was declined. The prime minister's office said his West Coast schedule had already been arranged. In Fremont, Lena Howland, ABC 7 News. Well, I'm going to do the best I can, try not to get deplatformed, and I'm going to try to tease into this in a way that it's enlightening. Since the beginning of the Jewish people, we've had people that really are dedicated to loving the Lord their God with all their heart and all their soul and all their might. And we've had another group that have been secular humanists since day one. Day one. I don't know, I mean, I could wax hugely spiritual about this because I do have theories about it, but it's really kind of irrelevant as to why for the purposes of this podcast. 
What I'm trying to do is clarify what's going on here. And I've been saying watch Israel because it's a microcosm of what's going on here in the United States. We have two ideologies hitting each other like two storm fronts. One is the Judeo-Christian roots of Western culture, the faith in one God. And the other one is Darwinism, which was introduced in the 1880s and has supplanted the Judeo, in other words, science, right? We got science and religion. Now, there was a long period of time in academia where people were trying to reconcile these two storms, right? They're irreconcilable in the current dialogue. They're they're not intending to reconcile. It's an old-fashioned throwdown. And what's happened in Israel is the religious, which were not part of the formation of the state. Israel was what's called a Zionist project, the original roots of Israel, going back into the early 1900s and late 1800s, really was essentially a socialist movement. The root of Israel was socialist, and the original European settlers, European colonialists, that's what they were. They were European. It's a settler colony. For those of us that want to talk about uh, post-colonialism, these were European settlers that brought Marxism to Israel, formed what was called a kibbutz system. It was a socialist government. It was a socialist people. There was nothing religious about it. Nothing. It was not religious. In fact, the religious the really religious, like the people that I come from, because I was there when this thing got going from the 50s, right? They were preaching in the religious academies that there should not be in Israel before there is a Messiah. Interesting, right? (laughs) Because that's another podcast. So there was not a religious root, but when the land of Israel became the nation of Israel, the religious made a very conscious decision, whoa, we better get in there or these secular cultural Jews are going to defile the Holy Land. So they sent their representatives, and more and more every year. I actually have a first cousin who's a rabbi that lives on the West Bank, and his brother intermarried and became a non-Jew. This is what it was to grow up in the 50s. And uh, over the course of the decades, not that long ago, the word on the street was that Israel was going to lose its Jewishness, and it was a secular Jewishness, because the Palestinian population, its demographics, indicated that there would be more Palestinians in Israel than there was going to be Jews. And guess what the religious did? They said, we're moving to Israel. We're protecting the Holy Land because they are people of the book, and they believe that land is theirs per the Jubilee. They're redeeming it. They're taking back ownership of the land. This is what's in their mind. These people would be called primitives by these protesters. You you can wear a yarmulke. It's a nice fashion statement. Okay? Fashion statement. You can wear a, a cross or a Mogan David, a Star David on your on your chest. Hey, it's a really nice 
fashion statement. But faith is a completely different level of expression and of giving over to the Most High God. So we got a group of people now that have given over to the Most High God, and what they do is they have traditional family structures, and the women work at home as homemakers and have lots of babies. And what's happened over the last 20 years is there's been an explosion, an explosion of births of children who are raised in a prophetic, traditional, faith-in-God tradition. There's just more of them now. They have a democratic advantage. If we're going to say it's a democracy where people get to vote, let's think about this in terms of the United States. There's a lot of legislation that's been passed. I don't like it. I would like to see it change. I'm not going to speak specifically, but one that would jump to mind is first strike nuclear capability. I'd like to see that change, like it would become impossible to even talk that way. Well, how do you get there? Politics. You, you, you get more votes than the other guys. That would be war by other means. And there is a group of very religious Jews that have now taken over the Israeli government. And Netanyahu, who is not one of these people, okay, he's not. He is a secular Jew, but he's a politician. Because it's a parliamentarian system, he's made alliance with these very religious Jewish parties. And he sees the demographics of Israel changing, so he's trying to work with it. Because you can be a globalist like Netanyahu, but within the globalist structure, there are now cracks and factions. Everybody's not together, as Klaus Schwab was saying. Globalism is fragmenting. Everybody's got a different perspective, and they're fighting over the split, and Schwab's sitting up there trying to manage all the chaos. And what he knows is, as long as the technology gets implemented, he wins. And what are these religious Jews doing? They're saying, to hell with your technology. We're not going to support it. And they've gotten control of the Israeli government. And who are they fighting? Well, the leader of the ant the the what the leader of the people that are against these religious Jews and fighting against Netanyahu is no other than Yuval Noah Harari, the preeminent philosopher of the World Economic Forum and the Fourth Technological Revolution. And we're going to come back to him next week. So these religious Jews are saying is these technologies, which of course Netanyahu, if you look at his history, was instrumental in creating Israel as a technological incubator, and there's phenomenal technology companies in Israel that are participating in the creation of the Fourth Industrial Revolution. Netanyahu's on both sides of the football, but the people that he's in business with, the religious, they're on one side of the football, and they've won the day with democracy, and they're voting, and their votes are translating to political action. So the other side, the non-religious Jews, they can wear stars. They can put on a a head, a, a yarmulke. They can wear those cultural symbols. It has nothing to do with faith. Nothing. And they're screaming, oh, this is the end of Israel. This is the end of democracy. No, it's not. This is the exercise of democracy. And this is exactly why in our country, if you mention the word nationalism, and this is where it 
translates where Israel and America are one system because we're going to talk about Elon Musk and Netanyahu now. They met. So let's continue the dialogue, and let's just preface into this. Musk and Netanyahu discuss anti-Semitism. Could you click this one under number six, Elon and Bibi, please? Two of the world's most polarizing figures met in San Francisco today, Elon Musk and Benjamin Netanyahu, both had a lot to say during a panel about everything from anti-Semitism to artificial intelligence. Let's go straight to Jake Ward for some of that. Jake, uh, Musk has a history with the Jewish community ranging from banning Kanye for, for anti-Semitism that we saw there to, to feuding with the ADL. Uh, did all that come up in this talk with the head of the Israeli state? Well, the head of the Israeli state definitely was there ostensibly to talk about AI, Gotti, but he was also, of course, there to make uh, the point that he wanted Elon Musk to come out uh, fiercely against anti-Semitism. Here's part of the exchange. Have a listen. I hope you find within the, the confines of the First Amendment the ability to uh, stop not only anti-Semitism or roll it back as best you can, but any collective uh, hatred of a people. Obviously, I'm against anti-Semitism. I'm against anti-really anything um, that is, uh, you know, that promotes hate and conflict. Okay, um, stop, please. All right, now let's get down to it. Now we're getting into the bowels of this thing. We're talking about anti-Semitism, and the allegation is, is that Musk, and these two are globalists. Let's, let's not think these guys are heroes. There's a fight in the globalist ranks about what the split's going to be. There's a fight about how to implement the fourth industrial revolution. Both of these guys are totally down with this. This is a lot of political theater. But now let's go down one level because the allegation is, is that Elon Musk, in opening up acts to more freedom of speech, has re allowed the replatforming of anti Semitic writers and anti Semitic ideas. And they're not anti-Semitic, according to the Israeli government. Let me read this to you. Below the level of Netanyahu, where it counts. Here's what Affairs Minister Amichai Chikli had to say about Elon Musk and anti-Semitism. As Israel's minister who's entrusted on combating anti-Semitism, I would like to clarify that the Israeli government and the vast majority of Israeli citizens see Elon Musk as an amazing entrepreneur and role model. Cheekly pushed back, referencing some Musk posts, on, Musk posts on X. Quote, criticism of Soros, who finances the most hostile organizations to the Jewish people and the state of Israel, is anything but anti-Semitism, quite the opposite the Israeli minister said. I'm going to read this again because what is happening here now is we're going to start clarifying what anti-Semitism is. And this is what this whole fighting is about, is, you know, Musk is allowing people on the platform to criticize globalists that he believes are, or he's being told to believe, who knows? But what he's saying is, we can only go by the words that are coming out of his mouth. Musk is allowing a critique of globalism that wraps itself and protects itself by saying any criticism thereof 
is anti-Semitic. And we're going to talk about that in a second, too. But let's again listen to what the Israeli minister in charge of combating anti-Semitism said. This is critical. This is a quote. I would like to clarify that the Israeli government and the vast majority of Israeli citizens see Elon Musk as an amazing entrepreneur and role model. Criticism of Soros, who finances the most hostile organizations to the Jewish people in the state of Israel, is anything but anti-Semitism, quite the opposite, the Israeli minister said. And this gets into this whole fight about the Anti-Defamation League. We saw that woman who was a, a rabbi with the Yamakan, you know, talking about you know, there's there's a open criticism of the ADL. Okay, what is the ADL? I mean, this is we're going to go into this in, for ongoingly, because I'm sure they would say, because I'm a proud nationalist, that Professor Penn is anti-Semitic. This is the key. The Jews were destroyed. European Jewry was destroyed in World War II. Hitler and fascism were described as nationalist movements. They were not. They were eugenicist movements based on creating a master race, had nothing to do with nationalism. It had to do with the race and ethnicity of the master race, the Nordic German people. And because Hitler went to conquer the world, by definition, he was a globalist. There was no national borders or limits on his ambition. But they made it nationalism because all the worlds, the United Nations, the Allied Nations, came together and defeated the fascist, Hitlerite, eugenicist movement in a battle. The war was not won. A battle was won. And European Jewry was destroyed. So Jewish people, I mean, I was there in the blast zone, right? I was not there at the exact time my parents were, but I know what the rap was. One area, Jewish people became very afraid to be Jewish. Why? Because you watched your relatives who had the dreadlocks and the black hats and wearing the hat and the whole deal, dressing different. We watched them be killed, killed brutally, not nicely, tortured to death. Oh, being Jewish, this is not good. I can get killed for being Jewish. So there was a lot of Jewish people that intermarried and fell away from the faith. And they became one with the culture, the new globalist culture, because they thought that was security for them. And the security architecture of the world involves protecting the Jewish people from another Holocaust. So many Jewish people gave up their traditional faith, joined science and the science of the globalist movement, and became the leaders in the globalist movement. Jonas Salk developed the polio vaccine, Jewish. The people that created the atomic bomb, most of them Jewish, could go on and on. Jewish people be a high percentage of doctors and lawyers. They, instead of becoming rabbis, they became doctors. In other words, the, the mediator between life and death, which used to be the rabbi or the priest, became the doctor. The doctor. Like Dr. Kelly Morrison here in SD45. The doctor. So 
the Jews became part of the globalist movement. They gave up their Jewishness and became globalists. But there was another group that intensified their faith in God. They became part of the ancient tradition back to Sinai. They held fast to their faith. They gave over to their faith. They walked by faith and not by sight. They sought to understand God's word and God's purpose. And guess what? They grew because they didn't put their right or wrong, if you're a I'm not here to say right or wrong. I'm reporting a historical fact to the women in the audience. Their women generally in that traditional society did not work. They worked at home. They were homemakers. They had lots of babies. So over time, the demographics, and demographics is destiny. There is more religious Jews now than ever before, more than ever before. And they don't want to participate in the fourth industrial revolution because they know It's science anti-God to the max, and they're fighting back. And they've taken over the state of Israel. And the religious Jews in this country are aligned with the Christians of this country for nationalism. They're extraordinarily conservative, and they are not in opposition to Christianity or American nationalism. Let's get it straight. Now, they are not out there advertising, but if you go into a traditional Jewish Orthodox community, there's no pro-choice people in there. Zero. Zero. There's no euthanasia people in there. Zero. Because life and death for these people is in the hands of God. Life and death for these people is in the hands of God. And even when you get to the issue of birth control, hey, if a woman has 15 kids, There's not a lot of birth control. And there's a lot of women in that community that have 10 or more kids. That's why Margaret Sanger said these communities of faith need to have their family size regulated by the government because she knew what this woman knew in the 50s, that if these religious communities were allowed to continue to, in her word, breed, that they would eventually prevail. Demographics is destiny. So you got Netanyahu, who is a globalist. 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 Musk. Globalist. I don't know what their game is. Maybe they've had a change of heart. I don't know. But I do know the Jewish people, and I do know for the listeners in the audience that maybe have anti-Semitic feelings. Let's clarify them. It's not anti-Jewish to be anti-people who are anti-human. If you're anti-human and anti-the tradition of hundreds of thousands of years of human beings being on this planet, if you want to evolve the human species using human agency to create technologies which change, as Klaus Schwab said, change the nature of who we are. Hey, if you're aligned with that, Professor Penn is not down with you. I'm working a political movement that is in opposition and juxtaposition to this con. And Schwab said it. There will be winners that take all. What kind of game is that? These people want to take all. And in Israel, Netanyahu has aligned himself with the religious because he's a politician. 
I really don't know what's between his ears. These people, I don't know. Just because somebody talks to me doesn't mean they're telling me what they really feel and think. He's a politician. But he's aligned with people that say exactly what they mean. And the people that are cultural Jews but are not religious and have gained what they call democratic rights and values through a political process that they see being reversed through a democratic process, they're freaking out. So what do they do? They say these people are nationalists. In our country, nationalism, a country with borders, limits on man's ambitions, a desire to maintain some kind of connection to nature. Oh, you're a Nazi if you believe that. You're an anti-Semite if you believe that. So they're going to call me an anti-Semite, and I love the Jewish people. And I can come back to this because the clarity around these issues, the need to clarify this so we can talk about this with dignity and with accuracy, I'm going to work on it with you. So I want to leave you with this uh, desire that I have to clarify this globalism and nationalism issue and move beyond anti-Semitism. And that's why I say that those of you in the Minnesota Republican Party that are watching me to know what I'm doing, if you're an anti-Semite or a racist or a xenophobe or a homophobe, get out of the Republican Party. We are going to refresh these parties and eject these people who are eugenicists and make a politics that's about the well-being of each and every American citizen. That's what we're doing. So spread this out. I want to wish you a well-being weekend. I'm really happy to do this with you. We're getting into some really fruitful issues for academic and intellectual research. So I'll work on it this weekend. I hope you work on it this weekend. Get outside, feel good, eat good food. I'm going to do that. And I want to thank you for joining, and I look forward to seeing you soon again.